0: lovely to see you again, some of you from of old. Jason, I think last time we saw each other was in Scotland and it was cold, it was very cold, but we had lovely chats there, I remember, and seeing others of you in different contexts and some of you are completely new faces for me. Uh, uh, and so it's just great to have these couple of days. It's exciting as someone who pops in to co-mission every whatever it is, five years, just to see the growth and the development of what is taking place here. You may not be excited. It's like watching children grow, isn't it? You know, day to day, you don't notice anything, but then you suddenly you measure them against the kitchen door again and look at the notch was six inches lower last time than when you measured them against them. You don't measure people against, Christian, against kitchen doors? Okay, well, you look at the old photos, you say, gee, haven't they grown in this last year? And watching this develop is, is like that. You know, from, I'm sure, week by week, it's just sheer plod. But yet... When you pop back four years later, as I just have, we're twice the size, where new blood come in, others are planting elsewhere, it's just exciting to see it. Gonna be looking at uh, evangelicals' uh, view because it's eschatology and the gospel, eschatology and the word of God that we're looking at. And evangelicals, as the word uh, implies, gospel people. That's what we must be, gospel people. I've already forgotten the time you said, 20 fast. Thank you. We're gospel people. And as such, evangelicals are believers in the word. A hallmark of evangelicalism is assurance of salvation. As soon as you undermine assurance of salvation like the, the new perspective does, you know you've moved out of evangelicalism. It's, just, it's a hallmark. We have confidence in God's word of our eternal life that is found in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Assurance is just one of those hallmarks of evangelicalism. And evangelicals are proclaimers of the word, not just believers of the word. For a hallmark of evangelicals is the salvation of others. I can't be saved myself and unconcerned about the salvation of others. Anybody who's unconcerned about the lost is prima facie lost themselves. So a hallmark of evangelicals is evangelism, which is why the non-Christians get very confused about the word evangelical and evangelism and use it all wrongly because all evangelicals will be evangelists and the only true evangelists are evangelicals. So it's just a part of us. That is, one of the ways to understand an action is to watch the follow-through. You know, if you... you My eyesight's not so good anymore, and I want to watch the cricket ball, where it's gone. I look very carefully at where the batsman's bat is heading, because there's a chance the ball will be in that line. And the follow-through is a key element in your golf golf shot. I used to play golf with my brother. He hooks viciously. I slice viciously. I found this marvellous little nine-hole course down in a place called Botany, which just goes around a paddock basically in a clockwise fashion. And that meant all my hooks went into the next thing and all his hook, all my slices went into the next uh, fairway and all his hooks went out of bounds. <laughs> Every hole out of bounds. And he never understood that I like playing there uh, for the reason I did. Uh, but the follow through is a critical element. So what's the follow through in the apostles? Having accepted the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, having seen his death, having seen his resurrection, having the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what did they then do? They created schools. They made hospitals. They they invented bishops, priests, and deacons. They started religious haberdashery and uh, a new iconography of of crosses and crucifixes. And and they made music groups and, and got involved in the political unrest of the Roman Empire. Not, 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 not. none of those things was on their agenda because that's not what Jesus was about. You'd never guess it today if you look at Christianity because that's what people fight about, that's what we're on about, that's what people are discussing, but it's just none of those things. What they were on about was the proclamation of the gospel. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. That's what each of the letters are about. The letters are missionary letters. Uh, our academics don't understand that. They think they are all kinds of things. That's because they are academics and not missionaries. But if you're an evangelist, you'll recognize the people who are writing these, gospel, these, these epistles are gospel men writing to other gospel people. They're writing to the churches they've founded or haven't found, like, like Colossians. They're writing to their fellow evangelists like Timothy or Titus. They're, they're missionary letters to people on the mission and their mission field letters. And you need to read them from that perspective rather than as a kind of new Christian code for living kind of perspective. It'll help you understand, say, 1 Corinthians 7. I've been preparing that for wherever it is, Belfast next Sunday. Um, uh, where they won't be preaching on 1 Corinthians 7. And yes, if you're in a church like Corinth and you see people converted, there'll be all kinds of sexual variations. As you will see, if you're involved in church planting and evangelism here in in this city, the see people converted their lives. will be a complete mess, won't they? And the sexual side of the life, the family side of the life is a key element of it. You don't have to be, why is he writing about sex? Because he's a missionary doing evangelism in a port city called Corinth. It's, it's easy to understand when you, if you're in the field to understand what it's about. The New Testament gospel that is being preached, but... Strangely, for evangelical ears, the New Testament gospel that is being preached is really the gospel of the resurrection. Because when you go through the book of Acts and you look at what he preached and how he preached, the thing he constantly preached about, all of them constantly preached about, is the resurrection. If you look at each evangelistic address, some things are mentioned sometimes, some things are mentioned other times, but the one thing that is always mentioned is the resurrection. And yet... For many of us, even evangelical gospel preaching evangelists, the resurrection is an afterthought. <laughs> you know, Jesus, rose, Jesus died for our sins and we are now fully forgiven and justified. Oh, and by the way, he rose from the dead. Right? Or we turn Jesus' resurrection into the grounds for modern miracles. But the resurrection was the heart of the message, was the, the, the real driving point of the message. It's important, therefore, that we who are going to be the preachers of God's word, declaring the gospel to our world, that we understand the word properly and we teach it faithfully. We understand it properly for our own salvation, of course, but we teach it faithfully that others too may be saved. Devote yourselves to your life and doctrine, he tells Timothy, for by so doing you will save yourself and your hearers. And so we really need to look carefully at the resurrection as the gospel because that's what eschatology is about. Now, when you were in theological college or whatever it may be, and please do not misunderstand me, I am very committed to theological education and formal theological education, I mean by that, tertiary formal theological education for those who would be professional Bible teachers. But when we're there, lectured by people who are not missionaries, Eschatology is an add-on last topic in a systematic theology course, consisting of subjects like heaven, hell, parousia, angels, and the miscellany that they couldn't fit into any other part of the course. (laughs) All kinds of bits and pieces get put at the end of the course called eschatology. But that just shows they haven't understood the Bible, because eschatology should be the first topic. Eschatology runs all the way through the Bible. The Bible is an eschatological document. That is the storyline of the Bible. From creation to the parousia, it's all eschatological. For Christianity is historical. Christianity is not a magic religion. It's not a nature religion. Christianity is a historical religion. In fact, we invented history. There's no point having Buddhist history or Hindu history because there is no past and there is no future, there is only the moment. But we are the people of history. We believe there is a beginning in the creation and there is an end in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and God is supervising the whole events that lead from the beginning to the end. And therefore, what has happened in the past is important for the future, especially as God makes promises in the past about what he will do in the future. And so we have the sense of history, history, is being dropped out of the Australian curriculums in and schools and education as our community turns away from Christianity. The secularisation of our educational system has now made history a really fourth-rate subject. Very few people are studying it, less and less are studying it, and anyway, you don't need to study it because it's all on your phone, isn't it? And therefore, uh, the modern concept of knowledge is don't have any, just have a phone. All you need to know is how to access information If you've accessed information, then you don't have to know anything, do you? Which is why the uh, the modern young adult is a complete ignoramus. Um, They don't think because thinking requires having information in your mind. And if you've got no information in your mind to think with, you don't think. What you do is you feel, you experience. All truth is determined by how I feel about it now and what Mr. Google tells me if I pull it out of my phone. Of course, once I've found it on Mr. Google on my phone, I immediately put it back in my pocket and forget it. Uh, Don't want it to clutter up my processes of feelings. So history, you see, the society's turned away from Christianity, and now it is divulging itself of the Christian things, bit by bit by bit. The sexual ethics being one of the ones that went in the 1960s. But today, history is being thrown aside as an unimportant exercise in your educational process. But Christianity gave rise to history because we are historical as people. This is how we understand ourselves because God has created us and one day will come for us. And so it runs right through the Bible. Take the creation itself, you see. God creates the world, he plants man, he gives man the, uh, the responsibility for the world, he, man in terms of humanity, male and female together to fill the earth and to uh, subdue the world. Uh, the world needs subduing apparently, it's not perfect when it's good because it needs subduing and to look after the garden and to care for the garden but not to eat of this fruit, not to eat, and so they eat of this fruit and so they now are cut off from the tree of life and at the end of chapter three, is all the Bible you need if you're a nature or religion person. That's, that's it. That's creation. It explains who we are, why we are, why it's a mess. We're no longer living in the paradise. We're now living outside. Pain and suffering in our relationship, women, and pain and suffering in our work, men. It explains us, except for chapter 3, verse 15, 16, about your seed will crush the serpent and the serpent will strike your head. That is the indication something else is going to happen beyond chapter 3, which is why chapter 4 then starts off immediately with her joy that she's produced the son who is going to destroy the serpent, but of course he is destroyed by the serpent. And so the concept that there is an ongoing story is built right from the beginning as God continues to make promise. That promise of looking for the seed of the woman governs the next 11 chapters or so of Genesis until we come to Abraham. But either the genealogies, the genealogies are not there for no purpose. They're very important as they indicate the search for the son of the woman, who is going to be. And finally, you turn up with with Abraham and Abraham, well, it's not him, but it's his son. But of course, he doesn't have any. And so we continue to work through a storyline in the whole Bible, which is, heading somewhere it's heading to an end point there's a that we're going somewhere not just here we're here to go somewhere else is what the whole character of the bible is and so god in the old testament continually foretells what is going to happen and when you come to the new testament it's all about fulfillment Uh, look with me to luke chapter 1 verse 1 luke 1 1 as he starts the gospel right Uh, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch, I'm using ESV, sorry, uh, if you've got something else. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. It's a funny way of talking about what's happened. I'm not telling you about what's happening. I'm telling you what's been fulfilled amongst us. Or think about Jesus, the great evangelist. You would know Jesus was an evangelist, don't you? You know, it's funny if you ask Christians, what was Jesus? They'll say teacher, healer, saviour, lord, etc., etc. Hardly anybody will say evangelist. But evangelist is how he's introduced to you in Mark chapter 1. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness after he was tempted. Then we read verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, evangelising, preaching the gospel of God. What's the gospel of God? The time is fulfilled. See, eschatology lies at the heart of the gospel. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Doesn't mention the cross, doesn't mention the resurrection, but he mentions the coming of the kingdom of God. And it's close by because that which was promised is now being fulfilled. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so this is the end times that we are involved in and engaged in. Uh, think uh, to Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, nick across there. Sorry, it's a bit of Bible flipping. We'll get to a long passage in a moment. Hebrews 1, 1, 1. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more exalted, more excellent than theirs. Something has happened that has never been before. In the past, God spoke bit by bit, piecemeal, by this prophet, by that prophet, a little bit here, a little bit there. But now the full revelation has come, which is why Joseph Smith is a false prophet. That's why you can expect uh, Muhammad to be a false prophet, you see, because the full revelation has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. And this full revelation has come in part because he has done the job. He has done what no high priest ever does. He has sat down, having finished the work. The work is accomplished, the work is finished. Something that has never happened before has now happened on a universal scale. Sitting at the right hand of God is the high priest who has now made the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Just to run a phrase off the lips, a sign of my 1662 background that I would be able to say something like that. It's the prayer of consecration. Um, Now, Here is Hebrews 1, the last time. But it's always been like this. You see, where are we, Hebrews? Go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. He's talked about the salvation and he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, the prophets all down the centuries were telling us about the coming of the Christ, telling us about the Christ was coming in suffering, and then after the suffering were the glories. But the prophets didn't know what they were talking about. Some of us feel like that on a Sunday too, don't we? But we shouldn't. They didn't know what they were talking about. God was talking through them, but they didn't understand their own message. In fact, not only they didn't understand, but angels didn't understand what their message was either. They kept on looking for what is going to happen, and when is it going to happen? Who is this person who is at some time in the future going to go through the sufferings and bring the glories of God? But now it has been made known to us by the evangelist. Who is the evangelist? The Holy Spirit, who speaks through evangelists the word of salvation that they longed for but never knew. We know more than the prophets knew because we are after the event that has changed the world, that we are now living in the glories' time, the sufferings having happened. Mind you, there's there's an overlap, as we know, because the sufferings of Christ are being fulfilled in our sufferings at the moment as well. But the glory time has now come as well, because now the Christ has come bringing this salvation and the Holy Spirit has come, to bring this salvation to the people, and the Holy Spirit brings the salvation through your mouth, which is extraordinary, isn't it? It's a lovely verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul says, I, we thank God, not only for this, but that when you heard the word of God, which, the word of man, you heard it as the word of God, which is at work in you. So here I'm speaking my words, but actually it's God's word. Because if I'm preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit is using me to preach the gospel. For the Holy Spirit comes as the world evangelist. Jesus was an evangelist. The Holy Spirit is the evangelist today. That's his task. That's his role to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That's what the Holy Spirit does through us using weak, feeble, frail, silly mouths such as ours. He does that. But notice the change that has happened, hidden in a revealed fashion by the prophets, but now openly revealed by evangelists. That is taking. That is. It's important to see the disjunction and the conjunction between the testaments, the continuity and the discontinuity. It's one Bible, but it's two testaments. You've got to take on board both those truths and just hold them in tension because it's one Bible from creation to the parousia. But at the same time, it's two testaments, because one was looking forward to what was coming. The other is declaring that it has come. And the difference is promise and fulfilment. And we are living in the age of fulfilment. We are living in the last days. Come to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples of... For us, they happened for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, These things happened to them as an example, for us that is, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See who we are? We are the people at the end of the ages. We are the people for whom the Old Testament was written. The Old Testament is not a Jewish book, the Old Testament is a Christian book. You know you, you know that you're in a false and heretical theological system and university or college when they have Hebrew scriptures and, and Christian scriptures. You know that they have actually not understood the Christian scriptures. Uh, they are not only not Christian, they are also intellectually bankrupt, but don't worry. We read the Bible and we can see what the Bible itself is saying. It's saying the whole Old Testament happened for Christians to prepare us And who are we? We are those on whom the end of the ages has come. Eschatology is not the last topic about angels and stuff at the end of the world. Eschatology is about the whole Bible. It is an eschatological book. And the gospel we preach is an eschatological gospel that we are proclaiming. For we are proclaiming the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the gospel. We're talking about the end. The key part is the resurrection of Jesus then, you see. For the Old Testament prophesies the resurrection. Ezekiel 37 is a great passage on the prophecy of the resurrection, in you know, the valley of the dry bones, when the coming of David at the end of that chapter, the king, the kingdom that comes, comes to a people who have been raised from the dead. Uh, Daniel 12 also speaks of it. But Daniel, remember, He's told to bind all this up, lock it up. It's not for now, it's for later. And that's the passage that lies behind Revelation chapter one, uh, where it talks, it's, it's mistranslated, but you work hard in your Greek, you'll see it's mistranslated by nearly all the translations, because as Act, they don't understand. It's referring to Daniel 12, when it talks about Jesus coming in these last times. It's telling you what will happen after this. Given these things have happened, what's next? These things have now happened. So what's next? If you understand what's happened, if you understand it properly, you'll know what's happening next because it's an inevitability. It flows out from you've seen the sufferings. What's next? The glories. Because that's what they've been told. Sufferings, glories. We've seen the sufferings. Glories is what you expect next. And so Daniel 12, he's got to lock it up. But we don't have to lock it up. We have to expound it. We have to explain it. For the Son of Man has come to the Ancient of Days in the clouds. He didn't come down to us. He came, as in Daniel 7, up to God. It's actually, he's gone. Urquimai, Purimai, go, come, it depends where you're standing. They're they're both the same. The Greek verb, go and come, is exactly the same word. It's the word of going up to the Ancient of Days to receive from him all authority to rule over all nations for all time. The Son of Man has now come in the clouds to the, to the Ancient of Days. You and I are all concerned about ourselves. When's he going to come back to us? But the Bible's all about him coming to his glory. That's the important thing. We, we are here in the Bible, but we are the, it's about Christ. It's not about you. It, the the centre point is Christ, not us. And so we read coming in the clouds and we read it as coming to us and he will come to us in the way in which he went in Acts chapter one, right? But it's all about the great news is, he's come to God. That's the big news. Coming to us is just an afterthought, it's it's a a minor thing. So coming up to the Father to receive all power, to rule all kingdoms for all time, that's the great news. And so the resurrection is what is important. The resurrection. Come to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. It's a funny little phrase there most people miss, Acts chapter 4. Sorry I move at speed and uh, have this accent that you can't understand. It's called pure English. Those with it recognise that the person is speaking without an accent. Chapter 4, you ready? And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple of the Sadducees came upon him, upon them, Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not what is said, is it? I hope it's not in your translation. You see how I misread it? Teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. If you haven't understood the resurrection, you will not understand Jesus' resurrection. But if you've understood the resurrection... When a man rises from the dead, you'll understand what he's doing. If you remember uh, Jesus' parable, the rich man and the poor man, and the rich man uh, goes to Abraham's bosom and the poor man. Sorry, the rich man goes to Hades and the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom. Always puzzled me as a child as to why a man had a bosom. I thought that was a naughty word or a word that only related to women or both. And so Abraham having a bosom worried me, and it also worried me as to how many men were on his bosom. It was the whole everyone hanging on to the hairs of his chest. And why we were there, it's like the Mount of Olives. You ever conned about climbing a Mount of Olives? It'd be very difficult, really, wouldn't it? There's all kinds of things. Well, if you weren't a child in Sunday school, you didn't have anything to think about. So I had all kinds of puzzles to think about. Anyway, he's up there in Abraham's bosom, and the, the rich man says, send back, my brother, send back Lazarus to warn my brothers. And what does Abraham says? No. They have Moses and the prophets. If they will not listen to them, they will not believe, even if someone rises from the dead. And yet we use the resurrection as an argument for the existence of God. It's not how the New Testament uses the resurrection. The resurrection is the argument for the judgment of the world. Acts chapter 17, you see the high point of his speech in the Areopagus is that God has shown this, God has demonstrated it, God has assured us of the judgment by raising him from the dead. Because you've got to understand what the Old Testament is teaching about the resurrection, to understand what happens when a man rises from the dead. The Bible, the word of God is eschatological. Take John 11, John 11, there we go. Uh, Lazarus, we've got another Lazarus this time, Lazarus has died, Jesus turns up seemingly late, although intentionally late, if you remember, and he meets up with Mary and Martha, and uh, John 11, where am I picking it up from? Um, Say verse 20, that doesn't sound right to me, I'm looking at the wrong page, John 11 verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, went and met him, But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now your problem and my problem is we know the story. We know what's going to happen. We know that he's been in the grave and Jesus wept. We all know that verse because it's the shortest memory verse in the Bible. Uh, I did go to Sunday school. Uh, And we know that, Lord, he stinketh, but you don't know that because you haven't got the King James Version. Um, The King James Version had some wonderful phrases that were so memorable. You know, the superfluity of naughtiness. Anyway, you missed out on that. Uh, Jesus, he stinketh. We know he's going to come back. So we, we, we miss what is being said. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, when you say this man's going to rise again, you're saying in our parlance, he's going to go to heaven. Of course, heaven at the end of the world is the resurrection for a good Jew. So to say he's going to rise again. Have you ever wondered, Jesus keeps telling his disciples that they're going to, take me away, they're going to persecute me, they're going to knock me, they're going to bash me up, they're going to hand me over, they're going to crucify me and after three days I'll rise again. never wondered why didn't they say, oh, he's going to come back to life? Because three days is the day of salvation and resurrection is the end of the world. What they didn't realise was the end of the world had come in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. They hadn't taken on board the reality of the eschaton, that now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the resurrection. In Jesus is the resurrection. And so Jesus says, I said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall not live. Uh, he sh- yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, I know you're the Christ. And if you're the Christ, you're the one who brings the kingdom. If you're going to bring the kingdom, you're going to bring the resurrection. It's all happening. This is the moment. This is the time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready. Now is the time. And in his death and resurrection, the kingdom of heaven opens up. And we now live in the last days. That is, I'm not going to go to heaven when I die because I'm in heaven already. I've been raised up with Christ to sit in the heavenly realms already. Thought the chairs would be more comfortable. Well, these aren't bad. But I'm sitting with Christ now. And so, our passage in 1 John, you see, we are now the children of God. <laughs> the world doesn't see us yet, but it is now, it has already happened. You could say the same thing in uh, Colossians 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your heart on the things that are above, not on the things that are left, because your life is dead and your life is now hid with Christ in God. When Christ appears, then you will appear with him. It's not something new is going to happen to you then. It's just going to be revealed then as to what you are already in Christ. We are now in the eschaton. The whole gospel is about it. We are coming to proclaim these are the last days. For this is the resurrection. This is what it's all about. Okay. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. A small little passage. Because this is the first great Christian sermon. This is the first sermon that is preached in the eschaton. <laughs> This is the first sermon that's preached after the resurrection. Uh, Jesus speaks to them, but this is the first Christian speaking. When when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The word arrived again is a word of fulfilment. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, to understand chapter 2, you've got to remember chapter 1. Small detail, but you've got to remember it. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the risen Jesus has told them that the baptism of the Spirit is about to happen. John the Baptist said, When the, kingdom, when the Christ comes, he will baptize with the Spirit. And now, Jesus is saying, You're about to be baptized with the Spirit. Jesus had told them the Spirit was coming to do certain things amongst them. And that's what's also mentioned down in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the land. That is, the apostles in particular were to be empowered to be witnesses. Well, that's what the Spirit has come to do. So the Spirit is coming to baptise people, to bring people into the new kingdom, and to these Christian people in particular, to equip them to be witnesses. That is, when you look at what Jesus promised at, uh, in uh, uh, John's Gospel, you know, the night he was betrayed, there are five promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and they promise that the Spirit will not leave them. Lo, I am with you to the ends of the age. But he's with us in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will not leave. He's leaving, but the Holy Spirit won't leave them. And the Spirit will remind you what I said and will teach you everything that I have said, which is a particular apostolic ministry, saying he can't remind me what Jesus said in my presence because I wasn't there. But the Holy Spirit teaches the apostles, which is how we know the truth of what was said. And not only that, the Holy Spirit comes to be a witness I'll come back to the witness in a minute. And the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment, and the Holy Spirit is going to lead you in all the truth, that is, all the truth that is of me, says Jesus in chapter 16. But the third one is this one witness in chapter 15, which is all in the context of persecution. The world hated me, they'll hate you. They'll, They'll take you or they'll kill you, thinking that they're doing God's work. Why? Well, a witness is somebody who testifies to the truth in the face of opposition. That's what a witness is. An eyewitness is someone who has seen something and testifies to the truth, but a witness is someone who just testifies to the truth. You may not have seen it, but you testify. Jesus testifies witnesses to uh, Pontius Pilate. It's not that he's witnessing about some road accident that he's seen. He's telling him the truth, but it's always telling the truth in the face of opposition. You never call a witness when everybody agrees. You only call the witness when there's contested argument. That's when you call the witness. And that's why the word witness, martyrion, wound up as our word martyr, because it's connected to opposition, conflict. And that's why you need power. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to witness because he is the witness and we share in his witnessing. And he enables us to have words to say when they drag us before courts and councils and and persecution and threaten us. He gives us the words to say in that context, you will be my witnesses, he says. And so now uh, we see the fulfillment of the baptism of the spirit, but also the empowering of them, the filling of them to speak. Throughout the book of Acts, as in the Old Testament, The phrase filled with the Spirit is nearly always with and. And then you add something on. Filled with the Spirit and spoke. Filled with the Spirit and went. Filled with the Spirit and and healed. Filled with the Spirit and. It's always an and thing. That is, it's an empowering of the Spirit for a particular purpose. And having been filled with the Spirit, you can be again filled with the Spirit later and filled with the Spirit later. Some of them are filled three times in the book of Acts, the same person. It's a momentary enabling to do a task that is being spoken of here. So they're baptised with the Spirit, which is something that brings them into the kingdom, but they're also filled with the Spirit in order to speak. And when they spoke, they spoke, verse 11, the wonderful, was it, The, the, uh, the, the mighty works of God. That's what they were speaking, the mighty works of God. But notice who they're speaking to. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, uh, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, t- sound, uh, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, aren't all these speaking Galileans? I don't know how you translate that into uh, England. I know how to translate it into uh, Australian. You say, aren't all these uh, Queenslanders? Um, but I don't know how you translate it here. Uh, Norfolk, is that where it is? uh, It's it's somewhere, isn't it, I'm sure. Um, That is not it i am sure these all Galileans. And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Why? Why does he give us a geography lesson at this point? you ever asked that question? Why? What, what, what's, I mean, I know he's making a point. All kinds of people from different places are hearing them in their own language. But such details as to where they came from. It might be just historical notes, but I suspect not both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and hearing them tell in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all amazed, perplexed by saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mock, saying they're filled with new wine. So here is this great moment when they spoke in tongues or languages. The word uh, is used synonymously, uh, dialectos or glossa, uh, just used synonymously here, because that's what's happening is a double miracle. They are speaking what they are not natural speakers of, but they are hearing what is, is astonishing in their own language. It's a double miracle that is taking place. But the most important thing is skipped over because of the miracle. Miracles often have this effect. People are so thunderstruck by the miracles, they miss the point. The point is These Galileans were telling the world, the the Jews of the dispersion, the Jews under the judgment of God, the wonderful works of God. And what were the wonderful works of God? Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, that's the wonderful works of God. They are proclaiming the wonderful works of God. There's a wonderful sermon I heard from uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones some years ago saying, as he always did, this is the most important verse in the whole Bible, that the wonderful works of God was what they proclaimed. I frankly had never noticed that that's what they were talking about. I was always so caught up with the fact that they were speaking in different languages that I ignored what they were saying. But the people heard in their own language, Those who had been dispersed under the judgment of God, because remember, dispersal is judgment. Those people who had dispersed under the judgment of God, they were hearing God's saving work. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you would suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, which means they weren't Australians. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and and your sons and your daughters your prophecy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on the male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below blood and fire and vapour of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the end of the world. Let's be saying. Here is prophecy, the Christian prophecy, the outpouring of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit gives us the prophetic word. Jesus is king. He rules over the universe. And now the judgment has commenced. Repent and believe that you too may be saved. Tomorrow I'll pick up more on Acts chapter 2 and our little friend Joel, because if you don't read Joel, you don't understand the significance of what Peter is saying because Peter changes Joel. Joel says after that, Peter says, in the last days. And it wasn't a slip of his memory. It's an intentional understanding of Joel. And when you understand Joel you'll understand why all these Charlies in their different places are mentioned. But of course, if you don't read your Bible, you won't know what it says. So we'd better read Joel tomorrow.